God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course, he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And uh, we had a vote in the Senate yesterday. And uh, the uh, Senate voted 52 to 48 to repeal Joe Biden's vaccine mandate for private businesses. And Democrat Senators Manchin from West Virginia and Tester from Montana joined with the Republicans and voted to overturn Biden's mandate. Now, the Gateway Pundit was talking about this, and uh, I'm reading something from the Gateway Pundit, and it kind of has me scratch my head a little bit, uh, because Jen Psaki said that now that it's on its way over to the House for a resolution, uh, Biden's not going to sign it. I guess because he doesn't have enough Democrats on board uh, and he's not going to uh, I think that the uh, House thinks it's too not not it doesn't go far enough so you have the squad that's going to become a little bit more irrelevant and the um, the Biden administration is moving away from the radical left squad and we've been talking a lot about the squad's tactic on how to get rich quick in Washington. Which is to say that if you have like five, six, seven vote disparity where someone like Nancy Pelosi has the political uh, capital to say, well, she has five to seven uh, vote advantage in the House. So if they vote straight party line, uh, what would happen is uh, Nancy would just tell everybody to vote accordingly, uh, vote the way they're supposed to, and they could pass anything in the House that they want. But with the squad, the squad said, you know, Nancy Pelosi isn't the boss of us. Let's uh, go ahead and push our own agenda. And so no matter what it was that Nancy Pelosi was coming out with, they wanted more. 
and by asking for more, they would split the vote. They would basically act as a uh, union, an unbreakable union. And they would be the determining factor as to whether things would work or not. And they got paid by a lot of lobbyists to either hunker down or to bend a little, depending on where the money was. And they all have gotten rich quick. And, uh, you know, Corey Bush and Rashid Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Ayanna Presley, you know, all those people that are part of the squad <clears throat> really have uh, gained some leverage uh, over Nancy Pelosi. <clears throat> and now you have Joe Biden uh, basically wanting to run for the hills because you have a lot of people in the Senate, for example, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Cinnamon, uh, you know, from Arizona, uh, you have uh, Tester from Montana, you have a lot of different politicians that are Democrats that are up for re-election. And then there's a lot of uh, House members that are going to have a lot of explaining to do in their districts. And so a lot of uh, members of Congress are starting to get antsy. And this is even trickling down to the governorships. Uh, we're seeing Whitmer, for example, they, uh, move away from mandates, trying to actually pull a chapter out of the uh, the huge, huge benefits that uh, DeSantis has gained. People are in love with DeSantis, calling him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And we're starting to see Whitmer move away from mandates. So this is a big win with respect to these mandates. So you got to wonder what New York City's doing because de Blasio is on his way out. Eric Adams is on his way in. And de Blasio is doubling down on these mandates, which are basically killing business in New York City. And Tester said it himself, you know, that um, he's not crazy about mandates. Uh, and that the, the businesses need a break. So it goes on to say the resolution will likely be blocked by the Democratic, the Democrat-controlled House. If the resolution passes the House, Joe Biden will veto it. Saki said this week during a press conference, Joe Biden mandated all companies with 100 plus employees to either test workers or prove they are vaccinated. So winning this war is actually quite an achievement. So three federal judges have blocked Joe Biden's vaccine mandates within the uh, last few weeks. Now, I did hear something about uh, the uh, Texas judge, Supreme Court judge, uh, talking about the re uh, remain in Mexico. <clears throat> but I don't know that that was a Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, because I just heard recently that Arizona... Uh, they're, they're not going to honor the remain in Mexico. And they have basically the lion's share of the influx that's coming through. So it's one of these things where a lot of these decisions that are at the state level need to find themselves in the federal court, in, in the Supreme Court of the United States, for resolution. And I think we're going to win those too. 
There's just no way that Remain in Mexico is unconstitutional. Of course it is. You know, and uh, and the the uh, there's no way that the vaccine mandates are constitutional. But we know that too, and that's why I always cite the Jim Crow laws because the Democrats who love segregation and dividing Americans have been doing it for years. And you know, the Democrat local local Democrat local and state Democrat officials, if you look this up in Wikipedia, says. The Jim Crow laws are written by local and state Democrat officials. That's what it says. And that's the way it was. Democrats were running the South, and they they had their draconian laws. They had their racist laws. They had their segregationist laws. That's why you had, you know, um, Governor George Wallace from Alabama, Democrat, stand in the doorway uh, blocking integration into schools. And the Democrats have always been on the wrong side of history, whether it's to secede from the Union because of slavery. They fought for slavery. They fought that black people would be re- remain three-fifths of a man. It was the Republicans that were established for the sole reason of abolishing slavery, yet Today, you see the Democrats embracing Black Lives Matter Marxist groups and vice versa. They, uh, it's, a, it's a love fest. Black Lives Matter is talking about the Jesse Smollett case and they're talking about basically not believing, uh, not adhering at all to, uh, never trust the police is what they said. And no matter what the decision might be today, might come out as soon as today. Maybe not today, but maybe today. The decision from the jury, once they wrap everything up, uh, could very well be that Jesse Smollett's going to do some jail time for the crimes he committed, for this big hoax. The mainstream media doesn't want to cover this story anymore. They've covered it wall to wall until they realized it blew up in their face. So Black Lives Matter's official statement is, Jesse has been courageously present, visible, and vocal in his struggle, in the struggle for black freedom. If that's what they call black freedom, hoax, hoaxing is black freedom. So anyway, they said it's not about a trial or a verdict decided in a white supremacist charade, 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 we can never believe the police. How's that for dividing America? And it's it's sad, but you know, uh, the lady who said that is Melina Abdullah, good friends with Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and those racist pigs. The Black Lives Matter co-founder, Malina Abdullah. How many brain cells do you have to rub together to come up with a comment like that? And shame on the corporations, the NBA and NFL, embracing this Black Lives Matter bull, bull, right? This BS, complete bull. We've been saying it all along, though, here. But they're starting to show their you know, real stupidity. You know, there's, and it's just hard to believe that we're in a country where 
we have a, a leading party, a party that's in control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. They're in control of it all. And they believe in that, in the leadership of that, uh, who makes that statement. They believe in the leadership that can make the statement that says, Jesse has been courageously present, visible, and vocal in the struggle for black freedom. It's not about a trial or a verdict decided in a white supremacist charade. We can never believe the police. We can never believe police. Anybody who makes that statement should be fired from their job if they're in some official capacity, if they're a member of the media. And now, you know, because Don Lamont is uh, involved in this, he might even be the next one. Head to roll over at CNN. I was just speaking with, um, you know, Pat Kinnean, who has a, a show, uh, Beer Chips and Politics. Um, basically, uh, he's been on. He's been a guest on our show as well, and uh, he's a listener, avid listener to the show, and he listens in. But he was telling me that uh, CNN's coming up with a new news news uh, uh, leader, head, head of the news department, and I think that they're you know thinking about maybe changing the liberal bent slanted na- narrative and getting getting the news on straight, which means getting rid of all those old stalwarts like Christian Amanpour and all these other people that made CNN horrible. You know? so And they lost their contract at the airports. So CNN is definitely hurting. You know, Chris Como's numbers were like around 600,000. 600,000. We do... You know, my, my podcast and my live show does bigger numbers than that. I mean, it's unbelievable. But, you know, through Chris Como's numbers were so small. It was pathetic. So you just got to wonder what it is that they're doing. You know, I see... Uh, Crowder and all these other people on YouTube with 1.7 million views. I mean, they, they're getting, you know, the way media has shifted, which really brings me to uh, another point, and that is uh, with respect to what we've been talking about good part of this week, and it's about... Twitter and the takeover and the censorship of big tech. Even someone like Matt Couch has gotten banned from uh, Twitter just recently, ever since the new guy took, took, took charge, right? And basically they're saying, Dorsey is going to, you're going to miss Dorsey. Dorsey was uh, a lot more uh, tolerant than uh, the, the, the new guy. But, you know, uh, there was a really great audio uh, clip I want to play and share with you. It's uh, Now, he talks too fast, and I don't know how this is going to come across, but Russell Brand, basically he's not a Trump lover, but he was definitely uh, supportive of Trump with regard to censorship. 
we're going to play a little bit of this. I'm going to basically uh, interrupt this uh, from time to time to give you a catch, help you catch up and understand what he's saying because he's got a British accent. But let's take a listen to Russell Brand for just a moment. Uh, it's a fairly long clip. I don't, I'm not going to play the whole clip. Uh, but he talks about this article uh, that I recommend everybody uh, take a chance to read, Matt Taibbi, Taibbi. And basically it's about uh, Twitter under Dorsey suffered from working too well. Specifically, society responded to Donald Trump's tweet-driven 2016 presidential campaign as if it revealed a defect in the platform that needed fixing when actual, actually Trump's election was proof that Twitter was working much as intended. Our political establishment was just, just wasn't ready looking for that sort of functionality. The original concept of Twitter was egalitarian, flattening, and iconoclastic to give everyone the power to create and share ideas. Well, what happened really is the mainstream media, CNN included, left such a hole. You know, it's sort of like when Fox News came around in the late 90s. And what happened was 50% of the United States wanted something different than the regurgitating liberal bias that was coming out of the press. And so Fox benefited because they got 50% with zero competition. They almost had a monopoly on conservatism. And 50% of the United States gave their business to Fox News. That left the other 50% of the United States to watch CBS, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, NBC, PBS, so that's like seven different organizations, right? So now that 50% was split up as a pie seven ways. So when Fox News would come out and say, we, you know, we, uh, we had bigger numbers than MSNBC and CNN combined, they weren't kidding. The problem is, though, they didn't have bigger numbers than all of the media combined. That was the problem. Um, but still... You know, that situation was that Fox News saw the business in that. Roger Ailes saw the beauty in that and, you know, basically made a, made a mint. Well, then, you know, the media, the mainstream media was still not right. And when Twitter was, uh, you know, really helping Trump win, you got people at the top that were radical liberals saying, we're a publishing company, no matter what we say or not, whether we say it or not, whether we admit it or not, we're a publishing company. And what we're doing is we're being overwhelmed by conservative voices that love Trump. So we're basically, we can't stand our own product. They hated their own product because they couldn't stand uh, American-loving conservative value patriots talking about promoting someone like Trump the Antichrist, to the radical left. So basically, uh, um, you know, Trump was the, the devil to them. And um, they hated Trump with a passion. But, you know, the idea was that they then needed to change their product. They needed to censor. They needed to throttle. They needed algorithms. It pretty much, in some respects, ruined their country, com- company. 
So the original concept was good, but prior to 2016, elite mouthpieces bragged about acting as gatekeepers to political power. Someone like them, uh, ABC writer Mark Halperin, who got fired, so did Charlie Rose, so did Matt Lauer, all these people that were actually pundits during the 2016 political cycle lost their jobs. Right, Boastful pieces about how a gang of 500 in Washington really decide the presidency. Of course that's true. But in any case, I remember seeing these flash polls and realizing Trump was like winning by like 80 percentage points in these flash polls that really, when you look at it, Trump didn't really win by that much, 80% of the, and I'm talking about a post-debate poll. And yeah, even when I thought Trump didn't do as well with one of the debates against Hillary, he still, they had him winning like in a landslide on social media. And that's what told me that the numbers must be so great because they can't throttle or algorithm uh, the tw- that, that response to a poll question. And so, and it was immediately after. And so, it told me that I think that the social media was about 70-80% dominated by conservative values. And that's really the same as it's true is, uh, in, in mainstream media and, and in television. And wherever it's not throttled by Google, like YouTube is, you know, throttled. And there was like, remember Roseanne? And then Roseanne became the Connors because they got, Roseanne got in trouble for nothing. And she made this comeback. And it was pro-Trump. And their ratings went through the roof. It's stuff like that that indicates to you, to me, and maybe to you, that the true numbers are, you know, in the raw, in the in where the business is. You know, look at the crowds that Trump gets. People say, well, crowds aren't the, they are. And the same thing is true with, you know, Ro- Rox- Roseanne, that comeback, where it was basically making fun of liberals for a change, Right. And they did away with her immediately. It was like one or two episodes and man, she was gone like the split for something like they called her a racist and stuff like that. Of course, you know, fast forward, you get all these hoaxes. Jesse Smollett. Let's take a listen to Russell Brand just a little bit. We're not going to listen to the whole clip, but let's take a listen. Yep. All right, so here we go. We're going to flip the... Uh, go on Twitter, and it would just be like sort of chatting to people, and you think, oh, my God, I can open this box of wonder. People are like, hey, how's it going? And silly questions and frivolity. Twitter is now a kind of byword for, I don't know, is it toxicity? Is it condemnation, polarization, Twitter pylons? What aspect of human nature has been brought to the forefront by these social media platforms? And are they neutral, just tools, as I often naively describe them? Or do they have within them embedded certain ideologies and intentions that it's impossible to avoid if you use them? Let's investigate this. Let's talk really about censorship. Matt Taibbi on Substack says, Dorsey's departure is the latest plot point in a long-developing internet tragedy comedy which has seen what's supposed to be a historically democratising technological tool transformed into a dystopian force for 
censorship and control. Twitter, under Dorsey, suffered from working too well. Specifically, society responded to Donald Trump's tweet-driven 2016 presidential campaign as if it revealed a defect in the platform that needed fixing, when actually Trump's election was proof that Twitter was working much as intended. Our political establishment just wasn't looking for that sort of functionality. Donald Trump, regardless of your feelings for him, and I know a lot of you love Donald Trump, was a master of communication and perfect for Twitter because he was able to precede data in an accessible and human way. Like many of his cusses and his style and the things that he would capitalise, it just looked and seemed and felt interesting. And I suppose one of the things that make me sympathetic towards affiliates of Trump, aficionados of Trump, is the way that Trump is subsequently being handled and censored and controlled. Even though you can watch the videos of me vocally, verbally, aggressively criticising Trump because of some of the language he used, some of the things he said, some of the implications of some of the things he said, rather than actual direct policy, because, you know me, I don't think it makes that much bloody difference who the president of a particular boat is, if that boat is sailing in roughly the same direction with roughly the same crew and perhaps the same sort of admirals back at base going, you bloody well sail the ship in that direction, otherwise there'll be trouble. Naval analogies aside, Trump was perfect for our age, our social media age, where polarisation, attempts at censorship, attempts at control, for a while played into the hands of a charismatic demagogic figure. Let's see what Taby's saying. The original concept of Twitter was egalitarian, flattening and iconoclastic, to give everyone power to create and share ideas instantly without barriers. Prior to 2016, elite mouthpieces bragged about acting as gatekeepers to political power. When political debates were held, a handful of analysts on television told you who won. We, reporters, told you who was electable and who wasn't. And people mostly listened, even if electability was a crock that mostly measured levels of corporate donor approval. Then came 2016. Trump didn't get the big Republican donor money. It went to Jeb Bush. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, Jeb Bush is going to win. Oh, another Bush. Oh, I see how it works. But Trump just smashed all that. You see the way he talked to that Jeb Bush. He just made a mockery of him. He used animal energy to sort of like, just to, to sort of flash him away, like with piss drizzle. He didn't get the support of his party's bureaucracy, which at various times pulled out stops to try to derail his candidacy for the nomination. And even conservative media locked arms against him early in the race. Trump, throughout his political career, benefited from free corporate media coverage. But by the time of his first nomination, he had universally negative editorial treatment in mainstream media and even serious detractors on stations like Fox. Once, that would have been fatal to a politician. Trump didn't need the news media to amplify his message. He was expressing himself in a way that defied contextualisation on a Twitter account that essentially became the country's most followed media network. Twitter's unique ability to exponentially increase the messaging force of a single individual had never been dealt with by institutional America before. So many unique phenomena. And again, I suppose it shows you the power of charisma. The somewhat hacky comparison of Donald Trump to an obvious historical figure certainly has one relevant component, the sheer power of the force of personality, particularly in a banalised and already corrupt space. Whether he was being dumb or smart or petty or cutting, incoherent or inscrutable, Trump had a way of expressing himself that automatically gave his tweets superior reach to news stories about his tweets. This put him permanently ahead of the news cycle. With this power, a politician was now able to communicate directly with voters and even the collective displeasure of the entire self-described political establishment could not stuff that genie back in the bottle. In fact, that's one 
of the things that makes me a person who ideologically is pretty far opposed to someone who strip away the charisma and uh, interpersonal magic is a billionaire property mogul casino running kind of person. That's not my vision of the future, you know, but like what I have to acknowledge and what I'm sympathetic towards is censorship. Like, this is what I feel. If you can't beat people fair and square because you're telling the truth, you're telling the truth. I want to make society better. I believe in ordinary people. I think things have got out of hand with billionaires and elites and big tech and the media. We need openness and freedom. We're going to have to learn to accept people with different opinions to us. We're going to have to reach across to people who we disagree with and go, how are we going to do this together? I know you think this and I think that, but what are we going to do? That's what I believe in. So I'm not coming from a perspective where I feel like, oh no, because really what I'm interested in is setting up all these elites and dealing with uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley and big business and the only thing I can do is shut up populism and pretend to be nicer and say that person's vulgar. You know, that's that is the problem. What Trump did is he demanded that politics become meaningful and politics couldn't become meaningful. So it just went, just get rid of him and then we can carry on being meaningless. Moreover, Twitter is so that that is really uh, one of the key uh, points, takeaways to what uh, Russell Brand just said there. Um, and I think it's brilliant that he, the way he couched it. Uh, you know, and it's exactly sort of like where politics is going again back into the elite, the military industrial complex. The military is in control of a lot of what we do. Uh, you know, like we've been talking about a lot, Fauci. Uh, being connected with the military, Fauci being connected with the deep state, Fauci being connected probably with intelligence. And I think that Fauci is Teflon. He's, un, he's, uh, he's protected and somewhat untouchable. It very well may be that that's why Trump hasn't bashed him the way you would think that he would. You know, and so, you know, Fauci is a bit of a uh, totalitarian tyrant. I mean, if we take a listen to this Fauci clip right here, now he, you know, Ted Cruz and him are going at it, Rand Paul and him are going at it, and rightfully so. He should not be the only voice in town. He's 81 years old, past his prime with respect to science. And he's controlling what the CDC says. And if you listen to even Jim Jordan, he'll say a lot of what he references and cites as gospel are things that he actually has fingerprints on and controlled. So basically he says one thing and dictates another and then uses those bits as reference points to justify his own decisions. It's sort of like writing a document and then citing the document, which is what the FBI did. You know, we're not done with that case with Durham. But the FBI circular reporting about the Russian hoax, they put it out there into the media and Catherine Heritage called it circular reporting. It's circular reporting where you put the media out as a source an anonymous source, and then you know where they all got that message. And one media borrows it from another, borrows it from another. Next thing you know, 
uh, CNN, MSNBC, BuzzFeed, Mother Jones, Yahoo News. They're all reporting the same stuff. Then it becomes a consensus. I think Nancy Pelosi referred to it as the wrap-up smear. It's an old tactic that the Democrats have been using because they have the media in their pocket. And they turn around and they cite that as a reference. But they themselves were the ones that were the source of the information, but nobody even knew it because they were anonymous. But here, this outraged me. I was outraged when I read it. It says this. Listen to Fauci here. Responsibility to get yourself and your family and indirectly then the community protected. So I would prefer, and we all would prefer, that people would be voluntarily getting vaccinated. But if they're not going to do that, sometimes you've got to do things that are unpopular, but that clearly supersede individual choices and are directed predominantly at the communal good. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about requirements. Response. So requirements, basically an order. Right, mandate. So again, we get back to this whole debate about mandates. And they're losing the argument with regard to mandates. And by the time, you know, so which is great because this is one of the things, you know, packing the courts, packing the Senate, turning uh, these uh, different uh, property uh, uh, states into, into real states like Puerto Rico, um, Samoa, Grand, Samoan, uh, D.C., turning D.C. into a state. All those things were things we had to worry about as conservatives. Now that the Biden ministry, you know, the Biden crew is in play, in power. And so we were all worried about that. We were also worried about these draconian mandates associated with COVID. And with these mandates being pushed back because of political pre- powers that be, you know, people like Manchin and Tester apparently want to get reelected, and they're up for they're up for uh, reelection. You know, it's it's one of these things where they're going to have to go to the center. So we're already having wins prior to twenty twenty two. Once we take back the House and the Senate, and again, we got to get that election integrity under control. But once we take that back, we could block all kinds of legislation that is radical uh, in the Senate, in the House, and uh, we could delay and roadblock a lot of these, this bad legislation that's, you know, unconstitutional. And we could even test it every step of the way. And that's going to buy us time until 2024, to which if Trump decides to run, Trump wins. Trump wins and we got 2024 to 2028 and his vice president, hopefully it's someone like DeSantis, 28 to 32 and 32 to 36. And it's going to be that level of time that will protect America and make America the greatest country in the world. While all these other countries are embroiled in socialism and globalism, America will stand tall, having won the biggest fight of its life in the last century, and that is the fight against globalism and the takeover of our country. 
Jack Posobiec writes, the drums are beating for U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. Our cities are out of control and our border is wide open. War in Ukraine does not serve the interests of the American families. Of course, we're going to protect Ukraine's borders and we're not going to worry about our own borders. We're going to mandate that everybody gets vaccinated except for people crossing our borders illegally. Everybody gets vaccinated. Everybody gets to test, you know, all these different things. And it seems like the American taxpayer is getting the brunt of the burden when it comes to financing all of this crap, but also getting the short end of the stick. You know, I just read a tweet today where, oh, here it is. I retweeted it. Lisa Terry says, I'm watching motorcycle cops in Los Angeles hiding on main streets, pulling over soccer moms going 10 miles over the speed limit and writing hefty violations. But you could steal up to $950 from the boutique on the same street and no penalty. That's the lunacy of in L.A. right now in a nutshell. Right? That's the kind of thing that's going on. So there's one guy, store owner, writes $951 for coffee, right? That way you can't steal it. If you steal it, then you're going to be breaking the law. Molly Hemingway writes, Russiagate is the biggest scandal in American history, going back to Durham and company. Nothing comes close in size, scope, or harm to the Republic than the years-long effort to cripple Donald Trump's presidency by claiming he conspired with an enemy state to steal the 2016 election. It's true. Now, I want to play this clip from Tucker Carlson. Really great clip. He puts the whole Ukraine thing into a really fine perspective. And so let's take a listen to Tucker Carlson's take on the Ukrainian conflict and Russia. Of course, Russia is going to test Biden. Of course he is. Because the same foreign diplomats uh, that we have running the show uh, as Biden the puppet um, are the same people that allowed Putin to go into Cromania and uh, also, you know, go into Ukraine after the Sochi Olympics. And, you know, the same thing's probably going to be true after the China Olympics. Um, Crimea is the word I was looking for, not Croatia. Crimea. Um, and, and I was talking about that, and I was saying, you know, so after the Olympics, they can't do this kind of stuff before the Olympics. They lose the Olympics. But I'm glad we're not boycotting. I kind of enjoy and liked uh, what, what Cantor had to say, the basketball player, that was protecting the Uyghurs from Boston Celtics. He was talking about, you know, at least the uh, athletes have choice. Now they can choose, and I think Cantor is in the position they should choose. They should choose to not compete, but they have the choice. So if there was one thing that this Biden administration did okay, it's that they chose a diplomatic boycott rather than a total boycott. Uh, so I actually am in agreement with that foreign policy 
positioned there. But you just watch China after the Olympics, how aggressive they beget, they become. And their eyes are watching not only what we did in Afghanistan, but their eyes are watching what we do with Ukraine and Russia. All right, let's take a listen to uh, Tucker Carlson on the issue of Ukraine. Just because something seems far-fetched or it seems crazy or it seems totally destructive to core American interests doesn't mean the U.S. government won't do it. That's the main lesson of the moment we're living in. So with that in mind, do not discount, no matter how far-fetched it may seem, a hot war with Russia. Yes, that is a lunatic idea. There is nothing we could possibly gain from a military confrontation with Vladimir Putin, and there's very much we could lose, including, of course, many thousands of American lives. But that doesn't mean Joe Biden won't do it. Biden is unpopular, he's incompetent, and he's desperate. But more than anything, Joe Biden is weak. He is a pawn of his staff and the hard-eyed ideologues who surround him. Russia is currently involved in a border dispute with neighboring Ukraine. Many of Biden's closest aides are pushing the United States to get involved militarily. Now, among the many, many ironies here is that the Ukraine crisis was largely created by Joe Biden's own aides and many people like them throughout all levels of the U.S. government. So here's the Russian position. For Russia, the core question is NATO. NATO is the post-war military alliance created in 1949 to keep the Soviets from invading Western Europe, and it worked pretty well for about 40 years. But the Soviet Union has not existed in more than three decades. It's part of history now. And yet NATO very much lives on, better funded than ever. It is an army without a purpose. So at this point, NATO exists primarily to torment Vladimir Putin, who, whatever his many faults, has no intention of invading Western Europe. Vladimir Putin does not want Belgium. He just wants to keep his Western border secure. That's why he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. And that makes sense. Imagine how we would feel if Mexico and Canada became satellites of China. We wouldn't like that at all. In Russia's case, this is an existential question. A NATO takeover of Ukraine would compromise Russia's access to its Sebastopol naval base. That's the site of the Russian Black Sea Fleet and one of the country's only connections to international waters. In the words of Russia scholar Richard Sakwa, if Russia lost the Sevastopol naval base, it would be, quote, the biggest military geopolitical defeat of Russia in the last thousand years. So for Vladimir Putin, that's unacceptable. It's a disaster. He cannot let it happen. He will not let it happen. But for the United States, and this is the main point here, there would be no benefit either. The United States would gain precisely nothing from taking over Ukraine. Why would we want to do that? At best, we'd be driving Russia, and we are, in fact, deeper into the arms of the government of China. And that would be a disaster for the United States and a disaster for the world. So why are we doing this? Why is the U.S. government pushing Ukraine to join NATO? Well, God knows why. But we are doing this. Both parties are doing this. The neocons around Joe Biden are for it, of course, as they are for every sinister and stupid idea. But so is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a smart man. So is Ohio Senator Rob Portman. So are many Republicans. So this is a bipartisan sort of insanity. The question is, can Joe Biden stand up to it? And the answer is, come on. Biden has always been more lobbyist than leader. He says what he's told to say. Once it was the credit card companies in Delaware that wrote his scripts. Now it's the neocons at the State Department. It's the same idea. Biden spoke today with Vladimir Putin by video call, and according to the White House, he informed the Russian leader that the United States plans to control Ukraine no matter what. 
Secretary of State and struggling pop musician Tony Blinken repeated that message. He threatened to send American troops there. Here's Tony Blinken's spokesman. If Russia chooses to fail to de-escalate, if Russia chooses to move forward uh, with any plans uh, it may have developed uh, to uh, continue its military aggression or to aggress militarily uh, upon Ukraine, to violate Ukraine's uh, sovereignty, its independence, its territorial integrity, uh, we and our allies would be prepared to act. We would be prepared to act resolutely. <laughs> These such children. Ukraine's territorial integrity. That's the concern. That's what this is really about, they're telling us. Because if there's one thing the Biden White House cares about, it's secure borders, at least in Eastern Europe, where borders are not racist. Ukraine's borders must be defended. It would be immoral to open those borders to the world and allow, say, tens of thousands of unemployed Haitians to pour across. We can't allow that. In fact, we will send American troops to Ukraine to prevent that. Open borders are only permitted in Texas, Arizona, and California, and anywhere else that potential Democratic voters might arrive uninvited from the third world. But Ukraine? No. Ukraine is a God-given right to territorial integrity, and American soldiers will die to defend that territorial integrity. That's our official position as a country. Now, according to CNN, we must stop these Russian attacks on the sacred borders of Ukraine, because if we don't stop them, what we could have here is what CNN is calling a dire security situation. Now, that phrase apparently comes from Joe Biden's undersecretary of state, Toria Newland, who, according to CNN, gave a, quote, gloomy briefing to U.S. senators last night. Now, Toria Newland is strongly in favor of war with Russia. What's amazing is that anyone, anywhere, is still listening to her. No serious person could take Victoria Nuland seriously. She's a joke. Not only is she obviously unimpressive as a person, ask anyone who knows her, and she's not especially pro-American, by the way. She was one of the architects of the disaster in Iraq. So why is Toria Nuland still talking about foreign policy? Is the guy who designed Chernobyl still building nuclear reactors? Probably not. Only in Washington, where failure is assiduously rewarded, could someone like Victoria Nuland still wield power, which she absolutely does. It's scary when you think about it. Victoria Nuland is driving our Ukraine policy, which, of course, is being justified by our broader support for, quote, democracy. Now, keep that in mind as you listen to this. This is the same, the same Victoria Nuland who was caught on tape several years ago scheming about how to end democracy in Ukraine. Here's Newland in a leaked audio recording plotting the overthrow of Ukraine's democratically elected president. Listen as Newland rattles off a list of potential puppets to install in place of the democratically elected I president. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. It's just not going to work. What about the voters of Ukraine who thought they were engaged in democracy? Nope, there's Tory Newland working to overthrow democracy. Keep in mind, if they'll do it there, they will do it here. You're hearing the same State Department goon who worked to organize a coup in Ukraine telling us we need to go to war with Russia to preserve democracy in Ukraine. These people have no shame. So the question is, what is this really about? Of course, it's not about democracy, for which they have zero respect. 
Well, in part, it's a hangover from the lunatic Russia hoax that absorbed Washington for three years. Everything about Vladimir Putin is bad, therefore let's have a war with him. A lot of people think that. But there's also a deeper cause here that's rarely noted. For years, Ukrainian interests have pumped millions of lobbying dollars into Washington, D.C. to change American foreign policy in the region. At one point, as you may have heard, they employed the president's own son to repeat their talking points. So tens of thousands of dollars a month to tell us that Russia is bad and we need to stand with Ukraine because democracy, even as we work to overthrow democracy in Ukraine. So with that in mind, now that you know that, maybe you were not so surprised when Joe Biden concluded that Vladimir Putin doesn't possess a soul. You said you know he doesn't have a soul. Well, I did say that to him, yes. And, to, and his response was, we understand one another. I wouldn't be a wise guy. I was alone with him in his office. That's how it came about. It was when President Bush had said, I've looked in his eyes and saw a soul. I said, look in your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And looked back at me and said, we understand each other. So you know Vladimir Putin. You think he's a killer? Mm-hmm. I do. These people are children. Again, children pretending to be leaders. Vladimir Putin's a killer! Presumably unlike every other head of state on earth through all human history. But honestly, that is not the relevant question. Vladimir Putin's soul? Who cares? We can leave that to his priest, assuming he has one. The only question that matters, the only question, is how does intervening in Ukraine help the core interests of the United States? And of course, that is the one question no one in Washington is asking. Watch the Pentagon's obedient little flack, a man with so little dignity he'll say whatever he's told to say, brag about how much military equipment we are now sending to Ukraine. And notice as you watch this tape that he never even thinks about explaining why we would be sending that military equipment. We have uh, provided uh, millions of dollars worth of lethal and non-lethal assistance uh, to Ukraine in just the last you know, 10 months, 11 months. Nothing has changed about um, our commitment to making sure that Ukraine has what it needs to defend itself. So say what you will about Donald Trump and his Twitter account. Maybe you liked him. Maybe you're appalled by his personal style. But in retrospect, if there is one thing that Donald Trump deserves eternal credit for, it's keeping idiots like that in their box for four years. There were no pointless wars under Donald Trump. That is not a small thing in recent American history. In fact, it's rarely happened over the past century. But through unwavering determination, for which he has not gotten credit, if there's one thing he deserves credit for, it's this, Donald Trump pulled that off. He resisted again and again when members of Congress and guys from Raytheon, when all the interested parties pushed him to go to war here, there, and everywhere, Donald Trump resisted that. And in Washington, above all, they hated him for that. In the end, they impeached him for it. As one witness put it during our impeachment inquiry, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. Really? We're going to fight Russia here, are we, Adam Schiff? Adam Schiff, of course, a dumb person and a partisan Democrat. But what's so interesting, and ought to make you sit up and pay attention, is suddenly partisan Republicans are making identical noises. Just this afternoon, Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, not a genius famously, but still a sitting Republican senator, went on Fox News to say we may need to send American troops to Ukraine, and possibly because this isn't insane or anything, think about the use of nuclear weapons. Got that in our back pocket, nuclear weapons. Roger Wicker, sitting U.S. senator. 
No one in Washington laughed at Roger Wicker. This is so crazy that no one seems aware of how crazy it is. They're all just sitting back and listening to Toria Newland tell them what we need to do. How much has this penetrated the psyche of Washington, D.C.? Well, here's a sad piece of tape. This is Joni Ernst, who's a totally affable, nice Republican, sort of reasonable on most things from the Midwest. Suddenly sounding like a bloodthirsty warmonger, sounding a lot like actually Adam Schiff when she talks about that dastardly Vladimir Putin. He needs to say to Vladimir Putin that we are no longer going to allow you to continue with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We need you to know and understand that we will defend Ukraine. Uh, We will provide them assistance. He needs to make that very clear. Well, he goes on a little bit. There's a little bit more left in that, but we're running out of time. And so just want to say, I don't know. I'm actually not opposed to Ukraine being a member of NATO, I'm not opposed to that. Um, I uh, would like to hear more about the pros and cons to that, but I think that you know we could definitely help prevent Russia from its invasion of Ukraine by peace through strength. Uh, by Ukraine being a member of NATO, uh, Russia would never test it. <clears throat> And, you know, there's all kinds of different NATO partners. Um, Turkey's a different kind of partner in NATO, and Ukraine might be a different kind of partner as well. Um, Right now, they're deciding to use the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline as leverage. But that shouldn't have even been on the table. Uh, That should have been off the table before this conflict uh, and this trouble ever began. Uh, And that's the way it was under Trump pushing back and not making it possible for Russia to get rich off the German, you know, European and German consumption. They have other suppliers they can get their oil from in Europe. It might cost them more, but, you know, you can't, uh, if Russia is this big of a threat, you can't enrich them. Same thing goes true with OPEC as well. So, you know, Trump really had the foreign policy right with regard to um, NATO, with regard to uh, Europe and the Nord Stream 2, with regard to uh, peace in the Middle East, and and with regard to a lot of issues uh, that he deserves a lot of credit for, uh, but never got it from the mainstream media in America who hates him. In any case, that brings us to the end of the Scott Adams Show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And be sure to check out scottadamshow.com for the podcast of this show or the latest podcasts in general. And we'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm from a small town in Tennessee, a long way from the suits in D.C., but close enough now to see this mess. We're a stand, the mound's getting steeper I grab a shovel, dig a hole a little deeper Just to bury my kids right up to there